So we're picking back up on St. Athanasius' On the Incarnation in chapter 11. And uh, I discovered last week, uh, thanks to my parents here, that I didn't realize there was two versions of this, even though it's the, from the same publisher. I've got one that has the Greek text <coughs> and the English text, but there's the other version is just only the English text, so the page numbers will not match up. But I go to chapter 11 of On the Incarnation, and the title for it is The Divine Dilemma Regarding Knowledge and Ignorance. And we'll be in the same place. It'll just be on different page numbers, so I won't say the page number to confuse everybody. So with the divine dilemma regarding knowledge and ignorance, you know, I want to kind of open it up to the floor of like, you know, as y'all are reading this, you know, what kind of stuck out to you or what questions you might have had. As we see Athanasius, you know, switching from the, the first part, which was the divine dilemma uh, that was really regarding, you know, uh, God's justice and also uh, God's care uh, and love for the world in which Athanasius, you know, really demonstrates that this divine dilemma of life and death is something that God cannot simply let go, you know, to allow his creation, his peak creation, humanity, to be condemned forever. But he also can't simply say, we'll let bygones be bygones because the human race is corrupted, and this corruption must be uncorrupted, must be undone. Therefore, he sends his son to undo the corruption of, of death through sin. With the divine dilemma regarding knowledge and ignorance, I'm curious, you know, just kind of like what everyone's take was reading this. Anything that, that kind of popped out at you or any questions that kind of percolated while reading through? I believe that with God being all-knowing, of course, he knows everything, so he knows our future. So he knew, he and Jesus and the Holy Spirit knew that we were going to fall short. We were going to fall. And so everything is in their plan. Everything is going as they had planned. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And we're just part of that plan. That's what it has to be. And they knew we would fall. They knew there would be uh, Satan would do what he did. Because they're all knowing. Mm -hmm. They know everything. Mm -hmm. And this kind of goes back to like we hear in the scripture. It says that Christ Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. Right. Of like even before creation before we talked about time space earlier before we, we jumped into this discussion even before there is such a thing as time or space before there is such a thing as all of matter being created to then go off you know in the the big bang whatever you'll call it the creation event the creation that we hear in genesis that the eternal plan is we will create and we will die you know for humanity that it must be done because making this world, and a lot of people kind of talk about this and think about why couldn't God have created a world in which there was simply no sin and no death and perfection? And God could, but it would not be this world, this universe, or this creation. We would have been created as robots, where there is not an option of, you know, choose life or choose death. Instead, it would be simply you're pre programmed to never commit sin. So it would not be in the image of God, in other words, and that really goes back to Genesis, of where we talked about last week how we're created in the image and likeness of God. And in kind of our pre-discussion before we started uh, talking about on the incarnation, we talked about how to this day, scientists are constantly, you know, learning or modifying their theories or the hypothesis, and they're constantly, you know, naming, you know, discoveries. And so when we discover something, we give it a name. And it goes all the way back to the garden of, like, naming the animals. You know, Adam is given this. We have biologists today and ecologists 
going throughout the world, even discovering new species and naming these species. So that desire to go forth and to, to name and also to create, you know, to build and to advance oneself, it goes back to the image and likeness of God. And so if God creates a universe where an, a fall is impossible, sin is impossible, well, you don't have the same type of angels that we have, number one, because the angels, you know, like, had a great rebellion. And that's where we get the demons from, with Satan. Satan falls from his angelic position, along with what we think is a third of the angels, based upon later scriptures, which is uh, rooted in Revelation. But in addition to that, you also don't have the human race created in the image and likeness of God. So in other words, you simply don't have the universe that we live in, and we wouldn't be who we are. It'd be completely different. And a lot of non-believers, you know, want to know why... Why would God do all this then? Well, I said, God was bored. He wanted some entertainment. We're entertaining, if you think about it. We are. From a distance, we're very entertaining. Well, I would root it in, like, it's love. You know, like, out of love, God creates. Because he, like, doesn't have to. You know, like, he can yeah. simply just be eternal. You know, he reveals himself, I am who I am. You know, I am the eternal one, the everlasting one. And even within God himself, we discover through the revelation that he is, you know, the three in one. There's not even a concept of loneliness with God. You know, the Father has the Son, the Son has the Spirit, the Spirit has the Father, you know, vice versa, you know, through each one of them. And so why, why create, you know, like you're, you're not lonely, you're, you're God, you're eternally, you know, purposed. And yet God, you know, John reveals this to us, and God reveals it to him, God is love, you know. And so out of love, God makes creation. And, of course, the objection is going to be like, well, man, this is one, you know, literally one hell of a world to make if God loves us. But it's like, but you got to finish that thought, you know, like God creates us out of love, endues us with his image and likeness. We use it for our own benefit selfishly and we fall. We condemn ourselves, you know. It's not God. It's we who condemn ourselves to death and corruption and sin. And then God so loved the world, as John told us, that he gave his only begotten son. It's constantly this movement of love. Out of love, God creates. Out of love, God gives us image and likeness. Was, Out of love, God doesn't just condemn us, but comes and dies for us. It was the only way he could redeem us. Yeah, it is. And that's exactly the only way he yeah. could redeem us. And that's how Athanasius is laying it out for us. Yeah. That if you're going to have the redemption of the human race, it's got to be through God himself, yeah. through life itself, because we have so corrupted and fallen away and decayed ourselves that it's, it's kind of, and I like that kind of term of decay, it's like, when you leave out fruit, you know, and fruit over time is just going to decay. It's, it's cut off the vine, you know, like, and when you do that, you cut off the source of life and you just set it out. I'm not doing anything to the fruit. I'm just setting it out, you know. The only thing that's been done is it's been cut off the vine and then it dies. It rots, you know, from the inside, you know, and is dead. And that's how it is for the human life. When we were cut off from the vine, from the branches, what Jesus identifies himself, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, the I give you life, and the life that I give you is myself. And we need that life, as Athanasius is going to walk through, in order for us to be redeemed and to be uncorrupted, to be made whole. But when Adam and Eve, you know, sever the line themselves, ironically, you know, like, I didn't intend this, but by taking fruit, you know, off of the tree, you know, you know, they also are taking themselves away from the source of life, you know, from God. And by doing that, we start to rot and fall apart. And that's why Paul, especially through Romans, talks about, you know, how once we do this, sin and corruption is just entered into all of us. We are all, we don't fall, you know, as the saying goes, 
the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Keep using this metaphor. But now, you know, we decided to plant ourselves as our own tree, separate from God. And that doesn't go so well because we all don't fall far from the tree of Adam and Eve. We're corrupted. We come off of a rotten tree that produces rotten fruit. And so as we fall to the ground, we're just constantly decomposing, you know, and not growing anything new. We just grow continually more and more corrupted humans. And so the amazing thing is out of love, God creates us out of, you know, greed, pride, and envy. We reject that love and we say, no, I want to rule. I want to have my own destiny. And yet God doesn't just wipe out humanity there when he could. He gets close, you know, with the flood. We see in the great flood of Noah, the reason that like, it talks about how God has all this patience, but the sin and iniquity of men has become so great that in order to preserve the line in which he promised Adam and Eve, in which a savior would be born to save the human race, he has to wipe out humanity in order to save Noah and his other family members, save the eight, and then start again with protecting Noah, protecting the line, and then eventually, centuries later, choosing Abraham and saying, it's through you that you're going to continue this line, and I will bring my Savior. And if you read the Old Covenant, you read the Old Testament, especially the history, you just see, you know, like, with numbers, as they're getting ready to, to take the promised land, it's just full of sin and error, you know, a stubborn generation, as the scripture calls the Israelites. But it doesn't get less stubborn from there. We inherit the promised land, finally. And we don't do what God tells us. You know, we don't take the whole land in possession. Instead, we start to go after the idols and go after all the false gods, the demons of the world. And then after that, you have all these, we demand a king, you know, like God gives us a king and the kings get worse and worse and worse with one or two beacons of light in there. And then finally, the punishment that God warned about, you know, happens. Of like, I have waited and I have waited, you know, for 400 years and now I will send you into exile. And even after we come back from exile, we don't learn our lesson. You know, we see that, like, that rottenness is continually there until the pure one, and this is why Christ comes in, you know, like, through the Virgin Mary. Uh, he comes in, you know, fully God, you know, like, divine, but also taking upon the flesh that he inherits from his mother, from Mary. And then he cleanses the human race by taking that same flesh, and eradicating the corruption and the sin because he's the only sinless one. And so that's why we, when you read Paul, knowing this, now you see Paul in a new light. He's talking about you've got to be in Christ, in Christ, the Spirit of God that lives within you. Do not forsake that Spirit of God. Do not neglect it. Stop cultivating your old works. Stop living in the ways of the Gentiles and live in the way of the life of the Spirit. Because what Paul is telling us and is reminding us, and we need this reminder, is that we are new fruit. Not because of our own doing. You know, a rotten fruit can't remake itself. A rotten fruit is only going to pass along and its seed the same rottenness that it's inherited. But with Christ, he's taken us and he's telling us that through your baptism and your faith, I destroyed the old fruit. You're not even that old rotten apple that you once were. You're now, your identity is in me. Like, I give you a whole new fruit. This is who you are. This is your identity in Christ. And that's why we have to keep telling ourselves, keep reminding ourselves that the sin that we bear in these old bodies will be destroyed when we are given the new body, the resurrected body. And in the meantime, it is a struggle, you know, living this life. But we're not just left to struggle with not no help. 
we're clothed for the battle, we're equipped for the battle, and we're given new life through the Spirit of God. And so Athanasius, you know, really hammers in, you know, the situation we're in, in which he talks about, this is at the, the bottom of chapter 12, in which he talks about such then being God's goodness and love for human beings. You know, he's constantly talking about the love that God has for his fallen creation. Nevertheless, human beings, beaten by the pleasures of the moment and the illusions of the deceits of the demons, did not raise their gaze to truth, but they sated themselves even more with evils and sins. So they no longer appeared rational, but from their ways of life they were reckoned irrational. So here it is, Athanasius is really walking through what we see throughout human history, you know, and throughout especially Genesis leading up to the flood as well. And as I say that, you know, don't forget what the Lord says about how will it be before his return. It will be like in the days of Noah, you know, that people were married, you know, people were uh, partying, and then suddenly the floods came. People never suspected, despite the fact that Noah preaches for decades. They're like, this is coming. I'm building this ark. You're laughing and mocking. You think I'm crazy. I'm telling you that God is going to judge. And we find ourselves in the same situation, you know, of like Christ will return, you know. Now is the time of grace. Now is the time of salvation, you know, as Paul says in the scriptures. Don't wait until that day of his appearance, the day of his coming. Because then, as the Lord says, then there will be much weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know. Because you kind of think, like, what's happened, you know? Like, Christians, we will be celebrating it. We will, you know. But, as the Lord also says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find anyone there of faith? You know, there's this big question mark and this big hint that there'll be, you know, such great persecution and tribulation, as our Lord says, such as the world has never seen, that there'll be a winnowing of the faithful. You know, there may be a remnant, there may be hardly anyone at that point. Who knows? None of us really knows, but we see these signs that Jesus lays out. And so, therefore, when he returns, it very much will be like Noah, in which there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth that the Lord has come and that judgment has come. But for us as the church, it should not be because we have just kept it quiet. We have just, you know, like played down the fact that judgment, you know, sounds like a four-letter word in today's culture. Well, it's going to because the culture is heading to hell in a handbasket because it's worshiping after the same old demons with the same old names. They've just been modified for today's audience. So instead of going and offering sacrifices to some wooden idol, in which we say that I'm worshiping the god of uh, Baal. I'm worshiping, you know, one of the uh, Asherah uh, gods, you know, from the Asherah poles. Instead, we just worship ourselves, and we fool ourselves. We worship desires, greed, money, possessions, whatever it is, what man has always done. But instead of inconveniencing ourselves, of going on a day of the week to offer sacrifices, we just sacrifice to ourselves by just keeping time to ourselves. I don't even need the facade of religion anymore. Instead, you know, I'm actually above religion. You know, I'm so much more wiser than you people who follow after this weak religion. Well, how so? Well, because I just feed myself. Life is nothing. Everything is material. And it's like, you fool. All you've done is given in to the lie of Satan. All you're doing is just worshiping these false demons. All you're doing is following after your pride, your envy, and your greed. And it's the same old sin. It's been repackaged for a modern audience. And ironically, it's been, you know, dare I say, even better repackaged by the demons. So they can say, you don't have to come and worship us. You know, like, we can just lead you to hell, you know, by just, you just worship yourself now, you know. 
and we'll just still be there to keep tempting you and thinking that you know you're going in your own right path that you're you're smarter than these Christians are and these people who are so weak that they need religion. So this is something that Athanasius really hammers home. You probably noticed, or at least I hope you did. He talks about the demons a lot. You know, like that's how the world is going after you know what is wrong. It's going after and following after what the demons have laid out. And something that we, we like to do is, in the modern context, even as Christians, talk about, well, yeah, there's a lot of talk about the demonic, there's a lot of talk about a lot of things in the scripture, but, you know, those things don't happen anymore. Or, well, let's just skip a few pages. Oh, the Old Testament's kind of wild. And we forget that when Jesus is in the New Testament, one of his most prolific signs is casting out the demons. And the demons even saying, like, what are you here for, the Son of Man? You know, like, have you come in order to you know, mock us, to torture us before the time, before the reckoning. The demons are professing who Jesus is. Sometimes even better <laughs> than what the believers, the people of God, uh, profess. So, good morning. How are y'all doing? It's Bill and Ellie. Hey, how are you doing? Well, we're glad to have you. morning, folks. The angels and the demons and really how today people like to just kind of poo-poo it and try to explain away, you know, all this, you know, kind of, you know, superstitious talk. And yet people who claim to be followers of Christ like to forget that our Lord is constantly confronting the demons, you know, and expelling them and showing his dominion over uh, these fallen angels, these fallen ones. And so we, we see that with Athanasius, as he's going through and is talking about you know, how humanity has basically has devolved. He doesn't say that word, but it's basically devolved when he ends this sentence of what's happening at the end of chapter 12 of what is it that we're in as the human race? Well, human beings, he says, quote, beaten by the pleasures of the moment. I love the way he talks about that because the pleasures of the moment, we don't think of them as being beaten. We think like, yeah, this is great. It's, it's pleasurable. It's wonderful. But really, it's our own undoing, that we are beaten by the pleasures of the moment and by the illusions and the deceits of the demons, that we didn't raise our gaze to truth. We didn't look up to heaven, to God. We didn't raise our gaze to the truth. But instead, we please ourselves. We sated ourselves even more with evils and sins, so that now we no longer appear rational, but from the ways of life, we're reckoned irrational. And it's a great way in which... Athanasius is telling us is that we are becoming dehumanized, that we are really unraveling creation itself, decreating ourselves, devolving, as we'd say today, and it really falls in line with what this little guy named Paul once said in Romans. And in Romans, Paul outlines the exact same thing that Athanasius is telling us about. When he talks about how, quote, this is from chapter 1 of Romans, in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And it just ties in so well with what Athanasius says, that instead of looking up and gazing to truth, what do we do? We suppress it with our own sin, with our own unrighteousness, with our own filling up ourselves. Verse 19, what, excuse me, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Through what, you may ask, Paul says, the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. So you hear this, we're being dehumanized, that our thinking, this image and likeness of God becomes further clouded, becomes, uh, as Paul says, becomes futile in the way we think, and then our hearts become foolish and are darkened by turning into ourselves. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we go from worshiping the only immortal one, the immortal God, to worshiping idols that are made in the images of the creation itself. In the image of man himself, we worship ourselves, or we worship these birds and animals that are made by the creator instead of by the creator himself. So then what happens? Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Well, where does this all come from? We exchanged the truth about God for a lie in the garden, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And then we just repeat this over and over again. We exchange truth for a lie. And really, Andrew, it goes back even before that. God and Lord <coughs> Jesus and the Holy Spirit allowed Satan to think he was the greatest thing since Swiss cheese. And his, his little segment of the angels, which were later the demons, he allowed them the freedom to rebel. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So really it goes back. And, and see, that's why we are being fought over between our Heavenly Father and Satan. And it's not even being, it's interesting, because it's not even being fought over, because that's the amazing miracle of, of what God does through Christ. Like, mm -hmm. We talk about like Christ has the victory. Like The victory has been achieved. Like, Christ has conquered, as we say. And Satan is just given in a lot of time, as the scripture reveals, mm -hmm. of like he can continue on, you know, as God even takes what is evil and uses it for good, as the scripture also says. And it allows, you know, like Satan can continue to run amok. And what I'm doing, you know, the God is saying this to himself, you know, telling us that the scriptures is that I allow time to continue on because there are still people in my flock and they will be saved and will be redeemed. So time marches on and we may think like, well, what's the point, you know? And as I think it's First Peter or First John says, you know, things continue on as they always have, but that's only because God is gracious and loving because he's still pulling and calling people to himself. And then when the fulfillment, when the completion of Israel, as Paul will say at the end of Romans, is done, you know, then the time of the Gentiles will end and the judgment will happen. But it's out of mercy that God knows who are his, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, and his sheep follow his voice. And so he will redeem his people. It's a promise. It's a guarantee because Christ has conquered. Meanwhile, Satan doubles down, you know, runs amok with his demons because they know their time is at hand. This is why the demons, when Jesus confronts, I think it's when, I'm going to confuse which one, I'm trying to remember which instance he confronts, but he confronts a man and um, he's going to heal the man and before there's a healing, the demons speak through the man and say like, you know, what are you doing here? You know, like, it's not yet the time, you know, it's not like the time of the judgment, you know, have you come here, you know, like to torture us beforehand? And Christ, you know, like rebukes them and casts them out. And I think it's when he casts them out into the pigs, but I could be wrong on yeah, that. Was. So I was thinking. I think what yeah. was the name Legion. Got yeah, because there were many. Of yeah. Them. And of course, Christ, he casts out so many demons while, like, I'm not fully confident on which instance. But regardless of the instance, the demons are the ones who speak and who recognize who Christ is. And they even acknowledge, like, there's a time for judgment. As much as they are rebelling against God's order and they do not want to acknowledge God as God, 
they know, you know, that their time is coming. They even apparently knew that God was going to, at some point in the history, send the Son, mm-hmm. because they are like, you know, what are you doing? You know, like, are, are you? Because they're thinking, quite frankly, are you here to institute the judgment? Just like the, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the other Jewish people are like, the Messiah is here. Are you here to like kill the Gentiles and take over and institute the kingdom? You know, and so they're thinking like, are you here for the judgment? Is it the time? The time's not yet appointed. You know, like, are, are you here for that? And Christ casts them out, you know, showing that he is, you know, the creator, that he is the one who controls. And so he sends them away. And what's amazing is that when you see in Revelation, there's a lot of interpretations for Revelations. But one of the things you see in Revelation is how the dragon, which is the interpretation, excuse me, not interpretation, the dragon, which is the same word for the serpent. Go back to in the garden. That dragon is identified in Revelation as Satan. And in this metaphor, in this beautiful language, he talks about how there is this woman who births a child, and the dragon is trying to devour the child. And the child, of course, is representing as Christ, you know. And so there's interpretations there of, like, whether or not, you know, like this woman, you know, is that the Virgin Mary? You know, is that the church, God's people? Before you go down that rabbit trail, what do you see the dragon doing? Stick with me on that, trying to devour the child, trying to kill and stamp out man's salvation. But he's unsuccessful. The woman is taken away, you know, is kept protected by God's holy angels. And so it shows that throughout human history, Satan's chief aim is to destroy God's plan for salvation. Because what we see is when God gives that promise in the garden of like, through you, Eve, you know, there's going to be born someone who will be the dragon crusher, the one who will crush the serpent. Sure, you know, he will strike the hill, you know, will deal a deadly blow. He will think he has victory. He will think that he has killed salvation. But dot, dot, dot. And so throughout history, this is why very quickly, before we even get to the flood, we see humanity just fall apart and get so sinful. Because Satan thinks, if I can just knock out all of them, you know, just get them all, you know, we're all trapped in our sin and corruption automatically. But if I can keep all of them from following after God, then I've won. There'll be no righteous one. I've got them. You know, that's what Satan thinks. God purges the world, you know, saves Noah, who's still a sinner, but still saves the line. And then throughout the people, the history of, of Israel, this is why when you see so much destruction, so much war going on, it's a war that Satan is inciting. Satan is trying to kill the people of Israel, defeat that nation, that kingdom of Israel, so he can defeat the chosen one. And then finally, when the chosen one, when Christ himself, God, enters into the world, you know, Satan thinks that he's got victory. Like, ah, you know, like, he's on the cross, he's dying, I will have claim to him. And then as St. Jerome would say, is that death, you know, Satan, you know, that hell swallowed up a man and received God himself. Not even fully realizing that, like, this is the Son of God, you know, enfleshed. And so when the pure Holy One enters into death's domain, Satan has no claim on him whatsoever. It breaks death down. It reverses and really defeats, you know, the claim that Satan thought he had through the law. Not that the law was bad, but the law just pointed out the obvious, that we're all dying and in corruption. And so that's the beauty of, you know, this is why it's so crucial, you know, of, of when we confess in the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell, which is he descended into Sheol, he descended to the grave, to death itself. He freed all those who were not suffering, but all those who were in Abraham's bosom, who are always following and looking after God, waiting for this day. You know, but he destroys death itself 
Because then Satan has no claim of like, no matter if you're righteous or unrighteous, I have you. David laments in one of his psalms, you know, that like, you know, who can praise your name in Sheol? You know, like lamenting, you know, like, you know, God, you know, bring your salvation. You promised us. Because when we die, we go down to the grave and we aren't with you. Christ destroys that when he descends into death. And he destroys and raids all those saints. Now you can. Because what do we hear? You know, David complains in the psalms, you know, like, I can't praise your name in the grave in Sheol. And then what do we see in Revelation? What we're about to say when we worship in a moment. Now together with angels, with archangels, with all the company of heaven, because they've now been pulled into heaven. Today you'll be with me in paradise, Christ says, to the thief on the cross. Mm-hmm. And what will we do? Now you can praise God's name. But it gets even better because we forget, you know, and a lot of Protestants today think that, like, that's it. You know, pie in the sky, you go to heaven. It's like, no, the fulfillment, the accomplishment of it all is at the judgment. This is why we, we celebrate the coming of Advent, the return of our king, when those, when we do die, we do go to be with the Lord. But the fulfillment of all things is when we're back in our bodies. We're not called to be spirits who are just kind of angelic but not quite angels. No, no, no. We're still separate from the body, and that's not good. What God made is good, and he will bring it back to fulfillment when he raises us from the dead in the new bodies, in the resurrected body, to be like the sun, the first fruits of the resurrection, as Paul says. So this is all tied together. And Athanasius is trying to bring our minds to the scripture to remind us of this. And that's he, where I'm always yeah. getting confused. You're saying it. Because you know, I always heard, you know, when you die, we go to heaven, which I, you know. But then you talk about when he comes back, we're all raised. Mm-hmm. So, and that's always, I'm thinking, you're like, well, if we go right to heaven, then what is it about bringing our bodies yeah. from the grave? I mean, I've, yeah, I'm a I've always confused. been confused. Yeah. And the other thing but, is, is if we're cremated, does that mean that we still have a body? I just want to know. Well, the good thing is that... Better than it is now. Yeah, God can do any anything, so... That's like those, the bodies... Yeah, God can do anything. Is the dead known the sea, you know? Like, we know that when we're buried into the sea, like, well, you know, like, you're you're not going to have any physical remains anymore, you know? But that's one of the reasons why the early Christian church, you know, said, don't cremate, because the pagans only cremated. They put you on a funeral pyre and burn you up, because they were Greek and thinking. Body's bad. Only the spirit and the soul yeah, is good, so, and so. sadly, that's infected Christianity. Because I was like you, I like I was like, I don't understand this. You know, it wasn't until Catholics have a purgatory. Well, yeah, everybody yeah. goes to purgatory, and then once when they're judged, then they go to hell. Yeah, that's yeah. what they believe. Right. Yeah, that's but, a Catholic thought. Yeah. yeah, and which our response is to like the thief on the cross who hasn't had time to be baptized, who hasn't had the ability to repent fully from his sins, has repentance. In that moment of repentance, because he, and let me rephrase this, it's not just repentance, because plenty of people say they're sorry, but like repentance in Christ, you know, and believes like, you know, I was mocking him, because don't forget, you know, the gospel also talks about he's mocking him, and then he witnesses Christ on the cross, at some point he is convicted and turns to him and says, you know, you know, remember me, just simply remember me in your kingdom. Please don't forget me, you know. Like. Yeah, but what did Christ say? And this is a question again. Yeah. Christ said, well, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Exactly. And so that got to I am going to ask, yeah. is heaven and paradise the same realm? Well, wherever God is, there is paradise. I mean, and that's why we see and in so Revelation. They, we get yeah. McMansion in heaven, too? Well, yeah, Christ yeah. talks about, you know, like personifying <laughs> the metaphor of like, what is it like? You know, it's good that I go because I prepare a room for you, you know. 
But let's stick with this real quick, and then I'll go to the mansion <laughs> of heaven. So when it comes to today you'll be with me in paradise, wherever God is at is paradise. Yeah. You know. And so but that's before the restoration. Before the restoration. And so what do we see? That then in Revelation, the okay. heavenly Jerusalem descends down to earth and all things are made new. Right. Things are recreated. It's even even though after it happens, then it's called a new heavens and a new earth. Yeah. Right. All right. this old is recreated. Is recreated. Right. So we don't go to heaven. So, heaven comes to us. Yeah, well, true. let me rephrase that though, because when we die, we know we go to be with Jesus, you know. Spiritually, you know, yes. you know, with our souls. The God in paradise. Of the dead. Yes, but then like in the resurrection, you know, when the heavenly Jerusalem descends, we're reunited with our bodies. And so those who are already predeceased with Christ, that's why we hear, you know, in First Thessalonians, the second Thessalonians. When Paul's talking to Thessalonians, he says, like, look, you know, there's great confusion, you know, in the Thessalonian church. They're like, What happens? You know, like we had a believer, have loved ones who are part of the church and they believe you're saying Jesus is returning, but they died. Paul, what happens? Do they not go? Do they not get resurrected? And Paul says, no, look, is all things are okay because if you have faith in Christ, like you're with him. As a matter of fact, when the trumpet, you know, blows, when Christ descends and returns, we'll meet them, you know. Christ and the whole heavenly army and all those who predeceased us, we'll meet them. This is where, like, the rapture theology gets, you know, Blown I know, up I know. Because they, they misunderstand that, like, <laughs> meeting Christ in the air does not mean that then we leave. It never says, like, and then we just go back to mystical heaven. Christ is coming down. Christ is bringing the heavenly Jerusalem down. And whenever the king came to a city, you don't sit on your butt and wait for him to enter into the door. You know, like, what do we do when we see a guest arrive? Typically, we stand and we say, you know, Open it's good to door. see you, you know. Yeah. And for a king, you do more than wait for them to get to the door. You go out to meet them. You go out of the city and you meet them, and then you process with them back in, like a victory march. And so that's what Paul is saying, is that, like, you don't need to worry about it. If you're alive, we go to meet Christ as he comes down to the earth. And for those who already died, they're with him, coming down, because we're coming to have this great resurrection. So the point that I want to make, because we've gotten off topic of what Athanasius is saying of like why has Christ become man become fleshed you know it kind of goes back to your original question of like what was the whole point of you know having a resurrection if we die and we go to heaven it seems like that's all that we need to do because God's not going to leave the creation just to burn up and disappear and be gone he created it good he would allow Satan to win for crying out loud and sin to win if he allows this creation to just be burned over or just left in the dark and forgotten about, just to go ahead and burn out some billions of years from, billions of years from now. No, Christ has conquered. And what he made, he made, and it was good. Christ took up on a body for a reason, in order to redeem creation and recreate it. So the resurrection is the completion of our salvation, is the completion of our glorification, as Christ gives us the new body. And not only that, but he recreates this world. And now God dwells with his people here in creation. Just like we saw from chapter 1, technically chapter 2 of Genesis, of God walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. Jesus, and that's Jesus. That is Christ. That is Christ. He's the Son of God. Because he's the word of God who spoke into, excuse me, the Father speaks and is the word who enacts all of creation. And so when God is walking in the garden, I submit to you, it is God the Son, Jesus, who is walking in the garden. The same God the Son, Jesus, who bent down and breathed into Adam's, you know, body, life, and created Eve from the side. 
and he walks in the cool of the garden, as is his custom, as he does every day. And it's beautiful because it gives this hint of this is who God is. He wants to be with his people because that's how much he wants heaven is God. And that's what he's going to bring back. It's a physical heaven that is called into being. There is the heavenly realm that we do not see, but there's also heaven, as we say, heaven on earth. And it's literal. <laughs> that's what we believe as Christians. Heaven will be brought down to earth and things will be remade. It will not be as we think. So I'll have so, to leave paradise and come back to the earth. Yeah. Paradise will come down. Yeah, it's to coming to okay. This is why. So if I've gotten, to, I thought paradise was a step below heaven, where we were well, waiting and there is a lot of royalty. middle. There's a lot of medieval theology that starts to break out like levels of heaven and everything. But sticking with the scriptures, like we go to be, you know, in paradise with Christ, and that tells okay. us that where God is, you know, that is paradise. as long so. as I don't leave, don't. Uh, Lose my paradise privileges. <laughs> as long as you're with Christ and in Christ, you're you're fully privileged because He is the one who's accomplished it. Okay, because I, I, you know, once you know, I get to paradise, okay. I'm thinking, young body, I'm gonna, and I'm not gonna even need food because I've already died. And you know, I got. But see, that's the beauty of it. Like, see, we don't get rid of the physical. Like in the Revelation. Like, what do we hear? That the tree of life is in the midst of the city Maybe. of God, you know? And then what, what does Jesus say when he says that, that he's going to return? He tells his disciples before the night that he dies, as he institutes the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, we're about to celebrate, he says, after he gives it to them, like, I'll no longer drink from the fruit of the vine, you know? I'll no longer drink from this cup. I'll drink wine until my kingdom arrives. Now, we are given, we're told, do this in remembrance of me. You know, always do this when we gather together. Right. But Christ says to us, telling us that, so when all things are made new, there'll be a great feast. And in all of his parables, he constantly uses this motif. Like, the kingdom of heaven is like a great feast. It's like a great banquet, you know. There's this man, he's telling a parable, and he's making one point over here. But in it, there's this great big party going on, this feasting. Well, you only do that if you have physical bodies. And Jesus, what does he do after he's resurrected the body? He eats. He does it several times to prove to his disciples you're not seeing a ghost in the apparition. You know, like, look, I made breakfast. Come and eat. And he eats in front of them. Because they're so baffled by this. They're just like, what is going on? You know, like, they're thinking to themselves, are we seeing a ghost? And Jesus has to assure them, like, look, you know, touch me, fill. You know, he's in the resurrected body already. He doesn't have to retain his wounds, but he chooses to show same body glorified. We all are Thomas. Yeah. Yeah, we <laughs> so are we see this beauty of this is why the Son of God becomes man. And so we need to, to wrap up here. Yeah, we're a little bit after time. But Athanasius, you know, uses these chapters in order to show that this is the purpose. In the chapter 13, it is about, no, excuse me, chapter 14. Like a few sentences in, Athanasius goes through and, and cites these uh, scriptures for us. He talks about how, in the same way, the all-holy Son of the Father, being the image of the Father, came to our place to renew the human being and made according to himself, and to find him as one lost through the forgiveness of sins. As he himself says in the Gospels, quoting from Luke, I came to seek and save that which was lost. So therefore he said to the Jews, unless one be born again, 
not referring to birth from women as they suppose, but indicating the soul being born again and recreated into that which is after the image, after the image of God. This is the reason why we use born again language. And we think of like born again because of our culture, like the evangelical culture, and we think one thing, which pause on that for a moment. We are born again because we're being born again in the image and likeness of God. It's not all made complete because we're still in the old body. But when we come to Christ, and Paul keeps reminding us, the Spirit of God is in you. Yes, even you, you crazy sinful Corinthians. If you believe in Christ, the Spirit is in you. So stop neglecting. Stop falling back into your old ways. Remember that Christ has bought you, and you are no longer your own, but you belong to God. And his Spirit dwells within you. So you're walking temples of the Holy Spirit wherever you now go. And so we've been born again into this image and likeness of God and called towards holiness, towards walking with him. And so he continues on and points out, look, he says in chapter 15, For a good teacher cares for his students, always condescends to teach by simpler means to those who are not able to benefit from more advanced things. So also does the word of God, just now as Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And so he's pointing out that Christ is constantly coming to save those who are lost. He quotes Luke 19 twice in this section of these chapters. He points out that God condescends to become one of us, to teach us, and to become one of us to destroy the corruption that we've inherited. And then he also emphasizes in chapter 17 that he, Jesus, is not enclosed in the body, nor was he in the body, but not elsewhere, nor while he moved that body was the universe left void of his activity and providence. What's most marvelous is that being the word, he's not contained by anyone, but rather he himself contains everything. Emphasizing again that Jesus is fully God and fully man. The eternal one, even while being in the body, is not constrained by the body, but continues being God, holding all things together. And by being in the flesh, the one who, quote, committed no sin, through whose no sin was found, excuse me, through no deceit was found in his mouth, took his body, and the body that he took on was not polluted, but, quote, rather being incorruptible, vivified and purified, even the mortal body. I'm reading for reference at the bottom of page 17. So Athanasius is just driving home that what you have is an uncorrupt God going into the corrupted flesh of man, taking on a body, and uncorrupting it, undoing death itself. And this is why Christ must become man, is that he takes the current flesh that we have. Christ had the same flesh, not, not special body, but took our very own body, and he uncorrupts it because he is the uncorrupt one. He completely destroys any hold that sin or death has on us because he lives a sinless, perfect life. And that's why we're baptized in Jesus. That's why we're baptized into his death. Because mystically, actually, and really, we are so identified with Jesus' physical body that he wore and still wears to this day that when he dies on the cross, that's why we can say we died with Jesus. Because we physically, it's as though our flesh was conjoined to him through time and space eternally. So that when we fell and when we do sin, we look back to the cross and we remind ourselves, he died for that sin too. And by his grace, he has filled me with his spirit. 
so that I can walk in newness of life, as Paul talks about baptism. And so for us, you know, looking at what Athanasius has built up here and what he's kind of laid out on these two dilemmas, he shows us that although we have this ignorance of true knowledge, knowledge is given to us through the revelation of Jesus. That people talk about, well, if, if Jesus just, you know, needed to die, why didn't he just, you know, pop up, appear, just die, and just be over with? Because his whole life is an undoing of the corruptions that we have inherited. It's a whole fulfillment of the law of perfection. God didn't just give us the law to say, go be good for goodness sake. He gave us his law to say, like, this is who I am. You know, I am holy. So this is why he says, be holy as I am holy. And we can't because we're already corrupted. And so God doesn't say, like, oh, well, you can't meet the standard, so you're just all doomed and damned. Too bad. He says, I'm showing you the level of holiness for who I am. And I'm telling you from the very beginning, this is the relationship I want with you. And you can't do it. And that's why I'm sending my son. And he, who is God himself, in the body of a human, will accomplish this holiness. So be joined to him. Have faith in him, as we say. Be baptized into him. Receive the Spirit of God. And you will be holy as I am holy. We will not be perfect in this law. Don't mishear me. But because we wear the robe of Christ, because we identify, not we, but God identifies and sees us as being attached to the body of Jesus, we are made holy. And this is why, as you read the Gospels, I encourage you, whenever Jesus comes and interacts with people, he'll enter in a lot of situations where people are considered unclean. They're not necessarily considered sinners, but they're unclean. And you can be unclean for a number of things in the old law. You touch a dead body, you're unclean. You need to go and cleanse yourself. You need to make a sacrifice you know, before you can come and offer other sacrifices to the Lord. If you, um, you know, have uh, leprosy, is one of the common ones we think of, like you're automatically unclean. And God lays this out to protect people so that they don't start spreading diseases. Like you're considered unclean, remain outside the camp, the camp. And with leprosy, like you can't become unclean unless leprosy is gone. But wherever Jesus goes, no matter what the problem is, it can be death, a body is dead. And so therefore you wouldn't want to go touch it because now you're unclean. You've got to go through the ritual purification. But with Jesus, no matter when he comes into contact with death, with a disease, with a malformity, a man who doesn't have eyes to see, you know, a man who cannot hear from his very birth, he touches, he says the word, and everything is undone. The dead are raised. The eyes are made. The ears are unstopped, and they can hear for the first time. The leprosy is gone because Jesus is the clean one, the uncorrupted one. And so unlike with us, we touch something, we become unclean. He touches something, he makes it clean. And so I say all this just to remind you that our call you know, to walk a holy life is a call. It's a real call for us. We don't need to devalue. We're like, I'm just a poor sinner and I can't do it. No, you're not. You're no longer just a poor sinner. You're a sinner who's redeemed by Christ Jesus, who's given you his very spirit, and who loves you so much that he always walks with you. And even when you fall, he still picks you up. And so we are called you know, throughout Paul's letters throughout the scriptures that John, that Peter, that James writes of like, we're called to walk differently. But the difference is now we are equipped with the Spirit so that we can walk with God. We're not going to be perfect, don't hear me wrong, but we are still called to be different and to be holy because we live in the midst of a sinful world. Not that we condemn, but that we invite and say, come be made clean, come to this hospital for sinners and receive refreshment. 
Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, I know we've gone long there, but uh, I'll pause. Any thoughts so, or that means we're going to have a short sermon? We haven't passed 1030 yet, so we're still good. Good try. It was worth a try, you know. So So with our our next step here, uh, the next section is begins in chapter 20, and it's called The Death of Christ and the Resurrection of the Body. So it's chapter 20 through let's see. Through 31. No, excuse me. So it's chapter 20 through the end of chapter 32. <coughs> so 20 through 32, which is about a, a page each. Uh, so it's not too bad at all, about 13 pages. And in my edition, it's 13 pages. But um, Chapters 20 through 22 that we'll do. And so it's on the death of Christ and the resurrection of the body, in which Athanasius is going to go even further into, you know, how are we renewed in the image of God? And it takes the image of God himself. Remember what Paul says, that Jesus is the living icon, the living image of God the Father. And so it's going to take the death of the image of God, the Son of God, in order for us to be remade and renewed in the image and likeness of God. So that's what we'll pick up at.